Welcome to Proudly ADHD at work and in business. I am your host, Coach Kathy Rashidian, and I help professionals like you understand the science behind your unique brain so you can unlock that inner genius. Ready to transform your ADHD into your best asset? Keep listening. Welcome to another episode with Coach Kathy. Today, I'm honored to have Inger Shea Colsey with me. I've been following her work for a while, and I've actually, this um, episode is so overdue. I should have had her on the show months ago, but you know how it is, ADHD and organization, getting invites out, getting connections, all of that stuff, so I don't need to explain, but regardless, she's here. Yay. Anger is an ADHD leadership coach and a psychotherapist, and she has a really interesting story, so for me, what I would like to do today is we're going to talk about a couple of topics. We're going to talk about the emotions, especially the grief that people may feel when they have a latent life diagnosis. And that, that notion of, well, how would have my life been if, if I was diagnosed earlier? What would I have done differently? And a bit of shame and all of that stuff. And we're also going to talk about ADHD and women, especially, especially black women. So I really wanted her to speak on this and really share her perspective and some of the experiences that, that, that she's seen in uh, her community. So welcome, Inger Shea. It's an honor. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I've been waiting a long time for us to actually be able to have a conversation. So this is going to be great. Absolutely. So you were late in life diagnosed. How was that for you? What, what happened? What was that emotion for you? And then I want you to go into what are you seeing in the folks that you're working with? Yes, I was diagnosed until I think I was 52. <laughs> the best part about having a bad memory is that I can't remember the actual <laughs> date or time or even age I was at that time. I get to forget those things. That's part of the beauty of ADHD. Mm-hmm. But I was diagnosed where after my son, my son uh, was diagnosed a few years prior. And, you know, being a black boy with ADHD, all we were doing was running around trying to manage his ADHD, manage him, manage the people around him, uh, especially school, which meant that I didn't get a chance to even address my own thoughts of that I had ADHD. Because when I got the you know, the rating scales and things, the Connors and such, as I checked them all up, I was like, that one's me, that's me, that's me. But, you know, I didn't have a chance to, you know, spend any time thinking about what I would do about my own ADHD. I was managing my sons. It wasn't until a few years later that I started to lose words. And I am a therapist <laughs> and therapists can't lose words. I talk all day and it scared me to death. I thought I had early onset Alzheimer's and I happened to go to a CHAD meeting for adults and a woman came in and told her story of being diagnosed. Uh, she was younger than I, she had younger children than I, but she still had a similar story and she mentioned how she was able to get diagnosed because I had heard that it was so much harder to be diagnosed later on in life. So accosted her after the meeting and asked her, you know, how she did it. What did she do? Where did she go? She was lovely. And she walked me through the process, but I had to drive about an hour and a half away from my home to be able to get diagnosed, to be able to get diagnosed and use my insurance and not have to pay like the, what, $4,000 we paid for my son in, you know, being diagnosed outside of, and 
I was, you know, thank goodness I was diagnosed without a problem. As soon as I spoke to the woman, she was a psycho, she was a psychologist and she was great. And at, right after the history, she's like, oh, you have ADHD, but we're going to go through all of the tests anyway, which is great because a lot of women don't get diagnosed. Well, they'll be diagnosed with depression or bipolar or anxiety or all those other things that have nothing to do with ADHD. So it was great because she was an ADHD specialist. But when I did, when I sat and we went over the, over like all of the results and she it was like, oh, it's like officially of ADHD for about two minutes. I was like, oh, that's weird. Like I just knew I had it, but that's weird. But it was like, okay, great. Like now I know what it is. And so now I can tackle it. Like there's some things that we can do about what's going on but what's interesting for me is that I lived a fairly successful life. You know, I had a, a long-term partner. Like I said, I have a child. I have a business that I've had for, my goodness, now it's like 20 years. And so I was just, it was the missteps and the confusion of why sometimes things are really great. And then yes. sometimes why things were so awful and I could not figure out why I couldn't, it just couldn't, I couldn't sustain it. Like why I couldn't get into flow. I was always trying to get into flow because the times that I was in the flow, things were amazing. That's how I got jobs. That's how I was able to move up in companies when I worked for other people. That's how I was able to make a lot of relationships. When I was in flow, it was amazing. When I wasn't in flow, it was like, I don't know, it's like running around like all, all over the place. And that was my experience of it. So to know that maybe I could, at the time, I thought would maybe make this a more linear process. I didn't really know, but that was a relief for me. And, you know, I had gone 50, 52 years the same way. So having it be a relief, there was not, there was not regret of my past because it's just the way that it went. It's, you know, like I said, I was able to do a lot of things and it was just so much more of a relief to know that maybe I could do all these things and not have it be so hard. And I guess that is the, the, the thing I really did not have that long grief stage. I think about two minutes of just, you know, contemplating how, you know, what would this meant, what it would be, and what I'm going to do next. And I think that that's probably the ADHD part of when you're panicked, maybe a bit. Yes. Like your brain works so much better. It's like, all right. Now it's like, oh, I know what the problem is. I'm going to attack it. Buckle up. And let's go. Yeah. Yeah, yep, let's go. And I think that that is probably the difference besides like sitting in grief. And I didn't really think about that until later, because what's interesting is even being a psychotherapist, you, we don't, at least when I went to school, we didn't get a lot on ADHD. We really, it's like mm -hmm. a, a, I don't know, it's a paragraph. And it was about young white boys falling out of their chairs. <laughs> so that's what we kind of thought that it was. And so even with my own child, it was like, he was a kid that would fall off a chair. He's just a young white boy, but he was all of the classic symptoms. So it didn't really occur until I got that checklist that it could be me, but it also didn't occur to me how it manifests differently in women. Cause I was never the kid. I was a little hyper. I wasn't falling out of the chair, but I was always fast moving and fast thinking, you know, or sometimes contemplating a lot so that it can be a little confusing, but you know, that was the difference where I, because I can think fast, especially under pressure. That's what the diagnosis felt more like to me. It's like, it felt not like a bad pressure, but a pressure was like, oh, I got to figure this out now. May I ask you something in that is, I just want to go a little bit deeper into, did it, did 
the way you were raised, the family you had, the type of work that you had, how did those kind of, you know, because I, I relate to that around, I was pretty successful in my corporate 20 years of corporate marketing. I was doing things and I'm like, what? How was I able to do all of that stuff? But I was in the right environment. It was good for my brain. It was fast paced, always changing. So an upbringing, I have some kick-ass parents and, you know, as much as they push my buttons, I love them and they, they I am who I am. So it's, there's the, you know, Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the, his book Outliers and just being at the right time, right place, born in the right month, all of that. How do you think that that affected? Well, I was, <laughs> oh, May is a good month to, <laughs> to be born. Maybe that helps them, but I am blessed with two great parents. My parents were fantastic. They, I never felt like there was something wrong with me. I felt like sometimes there was something wrong with some of the things that I did, which I think is different because I didn't take anything personally that, you know, I was wrong. I did a lot of things that my mother just totally didn't understand. And to this day, I love her. She still doesn't understand, but she didn't pressure me or she wasn't mean to me about it. She just was, she was afraid as she's expressed to me now, you know, especially now I'm doing a lot of this work and she was just always afraid that I wasn't going to be able to take care of myself, which is interesting. As she's mentioned this after I like owned a home for over 20 years and raised a child, but all this time she's, she's been afraid up until now, and my mother's in her mid eighties that I wasn't going to be able to take care of myself. And that was like a revelation to me that she felt that way, but you know, she did. And when I look back, that's what I look back in that she, she reminds you of birthdays. She tells you to go, why don't you do a dry run to the place and go see if you know, you know, how to get there. Why don't you put all your stuff in front of the door? You know, she, she would do those things. And I just thought that's what moms did. <laughs> so I think I didn't realize that maybe she was doing that because she was afraid, uh, that I wouldn't be able to do a lot of things. So I was in a good environment. And many times I push back, like, I don't need to do that. And then when I didn't take a dry run, I would get lost because I don't know my left from my right. Yes, <laughs> and too. I'm old enough that there was no GPS. So I was just like oh, all over the place asking people. So she was right. But, you know, of course I didn't tell her then, but I, I had that great environment. And my father, when I look back, he's probably the one that had ADHD, but, you know, we didn't know back then. You know, he worked, he, he had a good living, he did a good life, but, you know, he didn't even finish high school and he had a business and he take care, he took good care of all of us. You know, I had good upbringing and he was very understanding. Basically, it's like whatever she needs, whatever she wants, we're just going to give it to her. And, you know, I, maybe that was his way of saying, hey, I know I had to cope all this time. We're going to make sure that you're okay. Yeah. So I did have that. And so when I went off to college, you know, I fell off a cliff. <laughs> Took me eight years to get out of under, which eight years, no stopping, like no breaks. I went summers. I, I was ingenious in how I never got kicked out. You know, it took me a long time to think, but it's like, how do I never get kicked out? I, I don't really even know how I managed to do that, but they kept paying, right? They just would keep paying. And this is not like at $60,000 a pop, like the poor kids now have. It was a lot less and they just kept paying and paying. And I kind of grew up and figured out my life in college, but it took twice as long. Yeah, as what they they think it's going to take. And so, I mean, I was blessed with that. I think about if they had made me come home or if they said stop or if they couldn't afford to keep paying. When I got started to work, they, you know, different jobs. You know, I've lost my fair share of jobs. So 
sometimes when I speak, sometimes I think if I make it sound so like it was just so great all the time because it was not. I lost my fair amount of jobs. I can't even count that high, but they were never mean about it or, you know, they were upset for a day, but they were never like, what's wrong? What did you do? Mm-hmm. It's just like, okay, so we next week you were going out for another job? Like, you, <laughs> you know, like that, you know, so they were just really, uh, really patient with that. And when I decided I wanted to go back, when I decided I was going to go to law school, because why not? They were actually okay with it, but I knew I would have to pay. I wasn't going to ask them to pay for it. And so I decided to go and uh, get my license, my cosmetology license. That was just to be able to work and go to school. And when I went there, I liked cosmetology. So I didn't go to law school, thank God. I know I think I could never have done all that reading. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a lawyer. But I did like cosmetology. And so even though I had a college degree, I went into cosmetology. And they were like, okay. And then when I said, oh, well, then I, I want to be able to do, be a massage therapist. They were like, Okay. Okay. And then they pay for that too. <laughs> oh my God. I love them. <laughs> so, but when they did all of that, I was super successful, right? I found a niche where I was great. I looked and it's funny when I, I got a job, the cosmetology job that I just finished working at a few months ago, because I was still working on Saturdays because I loved it. I know that I had a boss that like understood too, like it was in another great environment. So when I was late, yeah. she'd be like, and then I go work <laughs> like any consequences because I was really great with my clients. I was great with what I did. I think that uh, people pleasing part I use successfully mm-hmm. because I was great with my clients. I would give service above and beyond. I, I had a wait list of people wait for weeks to be, you know, serviced by me because that's how I treated people. I also am pretty uh, empathetic. And so people would come and they would say back then, I'm coming for my therapy session. And that's how I ended up becoming a therapist. Oh, good one. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. One day I was like, Smart. You, know, you could do this, yeah. you know, actually do this, like have some real training. <laughs> and so I did. So when I went back to school, I will say I paid for that. I did pay for something people. I paid for that. But by then I was ready. I knew what I wanted to do. But my parents supported then because when I decided to go back to school, that's when I got pregnant. And I didn't think I was going to be able to get pregnant. So it was a blessing. But, you know, like I said, my, my husband and I, we were together. We've been together. But you need your mom right, to help you because I only missed one day of school when I had my son. So I was pregnant or had a, a newborn the whole time. When I had my son, well, had him on the day that I had night class. I said, oh, they say you can only miss two classes. You know, I had black and white thinking. And my mom said, well, you said that you can only miss two classes. You missed one, you had the baby. You better go next this week. So she watched my baby. I show up at class. They're like, what are you doing here? I was like, did you have a baby? I said, yeah. They were like, you could have missed another class. Like, we would have been okay. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm here now. So <laughs> yeah, let's do this. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, that's just kind of my way of being. But I will say, as you mentioned, I've had a really supportive environment and people let me be who I needed to be. And they never judged me for very little, you know, everybody's human, mm-hmm. but for the things that I did or the way that I thought or, you know, so I've never been in spaces where I've felt less than. And I think that that is a really important part. And as you mentioned, the grieving part for others that are late diagnosis, I feel like that is the biggest part. They were not in spaces where people just kind of allowed them to be them and gave them grace 
or allowed them to see their value that they were giving to the other people. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. Before we continue on that, because I loved everything you just said. One thing I picked up out of that, that your, your beautiful story, your self-observation of, oh, there it is. Oh, now I see this. And now I want to do this. It's just connecting the dots. You, you naturally are kick-ass at that. And, and it's gotten to you to where you are, which is like so commendable. And, and for me, that's one of the things I say is you've got the answers in you. It's just slow down and self-observe, become aware of what's happening. The universe is giving you the clues. You just have to kind of put them together. So for those that are going through that grief, and like you said, it could have been family, the self-esteem. There was this thing about, you know, by the time we're like something about the under the age of 10 or 12 that the, the kids would hear so many 20,000 negative words, all of that stuff. And as you mentioned, like your parents were like, yes, let's go. Let's do it. Cautiously, they didn't helicopter parent you. They were on the side watching. What do you, what, what do we want to say to those that are going through this grieving process and how can they manage it? Yes. Well, yeah. Was it 20,000 negative messages? I think that is for your 10. And I, I think I got 20,000 negative messages. I mean, I had great parents, but I still had to go to school, right? Yes. <laughs> I still had to go to school. If there were still people around me that weren't good friends, you know, I had many different negative messages. I remember being, you know, the safety guard. They still have that with kids where you like stand there and watch, you know, the, the kids go across the street and everybody turns and in fifth grade, the teacher, I was late every day and the teacher stood me in front of the class and said, she does, obviously does not want to do this because she does not show up at some time. Who wants to take over like the rest of the week? And I was like, what? Even at, at, I was like, why does he hate me? Right. (laughs) So, you know, I, I get those messages that you get where you really feel like you're wrong or you're bad or somebody hates you and having to, you do internalize them. You know, I I speak of ADHD as like, like a million little cuts, right? It's not, you know, I didn't bleed out in like, like a big stabbing motion. It all came out. Any of the things I have with bad self-esteem or or not getting things done uh, and, in judging myself with the tiny little cuts that came along the way. And I feel that, you know, for some people, like I said, you know, there's that big T trauma that we all see and we all yes. like get. It's like, I totally would get that. But the little T traumas are just as important. And I think that people need to know that, that when you were dismissed or when people were mean or, or when they said these things that maybe behind your back or maybe you heard them, you know, they add up to the way that you might feel now in a late stage diagnosis. So it's important and it's real. But I also know that when you, you know, as you mentioned, can take a second and slow down and and grieve that and say that, you know, that was real pain, right? That was, these things happened, whether it was big or little, is real pain. And just be with that pain for a, a little bit. You know, you don't have to wallow in it. You know, you're already mm. in grief, but really be with what the actual pain of it is. Like the fact that, you know, maybe you were humiliated or people did say these things about you, but it's what, it's their stuff. It's not yours, right? So it's painful that they said it, but it's not who you are. Um, who you are is that wonderful person that you do see somewhere in there that's been buried under all of the stuff. So when, you know, as you're mentioning, when you can stop for a second, you can then deal with that pain and then start dealing with the stuff, right? Start dealing with the stuff. 
you have all the answer. I, it's your life. <laughs> I say it all the time. I was just saying, actually, this morning before we came, I'm not here to tell you what to do. Why would I? I'm not the expert in your life. You are. I'm here to help you kind of get to where you want to go. Like all that stuff is like in a chasm and we're going to try to like build a bridge over top. And I'm just here to, to walk there with you, you know, in a way that's guided. Like I have training in doing it. So it's great doing these things with your friends or family. And, you know, they have a place too, if they're ones that can do, you know, non-judgmentally. But, you know, I'm just trained a guy to try to help you figure out what you want. And I feel like once people get past that pain part, like they rock it and go, right? It's, yes. it's amazing. And a lot of times it doesn't take that long to get over the pain part. You would think like many, many years, you know, not know what's going on or just being upset or not having a successful life. It would be really hard. I find that, you know, a lot of times when people just really know like, oh, it's pain and it's real and you witness it, they can, they can, you know, heal from that enough to really start going. And once they're, you know, just a few things go right, their whole life goes right. Like it is my honor when I see somebody walk through the door on the other side of this grief and pain and they light up and I light up like, this is what I do it for. Mm-hmm. And it's my honor that they let me do it with them and witness that with them. So, I mean, it, I know people even older than me, they're like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, it can be done. I, I love that I had to wait this long because it gave me some grit, right? I have grit and resolve and smarts that I might not have had if I knew about it when I was in, I don't know, 10, 12 years old. And people at late stage diagnosis, that's what we use to be able to get you to the, uh, the other side of knowing that you can have a successful life. That's right. That's right. And you know, one thing you mentioned about discussing it or sharing it with family and friends, what the difference that I see is when you do it with a professionally trained person that totally knows how to guide the conversation, like the way you do with your clients and take them through a journey. And it's, it, you have a system going on. They don't need to know about the system, but it's, they come in with trust of Inger Shea is going to take my hand. We're going to go through this together. And it's that flashlight that I say is, you know, we're putting the flashlight Oh, There's a pothole over there. Oh, don't, don't walk into the wall there. You can, if you want to, and bang your head and feel the pain, but then what do you want to do after? And I think that is so important. And sometimes, you know, I'll say it. Sometimes people, I hear people like, oh, therapist, whatever. It's like, you know, forever. They just want you to keep coming back and back and back. And I think once you work with the therapist that knows exactly what to do, it doesn't have to be a long journey. It doesn't have to be 50 sessions of healing little T trauma and big T trauma. It's moving through it and then the healing of the wounds, like it's really licking the wounds and saying, it's all good. I got this. And the other side of it is so exciting. It's just like anything. You go to the dentist. Okay. Teeth are done. You, you take your car to a, you know, a mechanic who knows what they're doing. Car gets fixed. So it's, it's important. And thank you for, for bringing that up. And thank you for the work that you're doing, Rishay. That That's really, truly a gift that you have. And I'm so glad you left cosmetology to come and do this work. So let, let's shift gear now to the other side of the conversation around Black women and, and just Black Americans, Black Canadians. I'm in Canada. I, I see it. And that whole conversation on ADHD in that community. And, and for those of you that may or may not know, I grew up in Middle East. I was an immigrant child when we came to Canada. 
So for me, there was this culture shock too. And, you know, this brown girl comes into this school that oh, there are only five colored kids. And that was it. In 89, in the city that I lived, we were so, so minority. And just they looked at me like I was an alien. Anyways, that's another story for another time. But all of that affects us, right? It's, it's not only neuro minority and then inject the race and all of that stuff, like, boom, huge. So where do you want to start with that conversation? I love this conversation. That's why. <laughs> and, sure and please note, if there's anything that I say wrong, if the terminology I use is wrong, correct me. I'm here. Go. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad that you said this first. So the thing is, these are important conversations and people are going to make missteps. And I think it's important to allow people to make some missteps and to be able, you know, to correct them and have the other person be open to the correction so that everybody, you know, can be together and have this conversation because everybody's going to be so sensitive and not allow somebody, you know, to learn from their mistakes or not allow the other person to correct them. We're not going to get anywhere. Like we could be here forever. And I really want to move forward, you know, black, you know, minority mental health, black mental health and ADHD and black women in particular. So it's, you know, it's like, take a breath, (laughs) you know, there's no chastation, but it's funny when I have these conversations, you know, most people I see where their shoulders are up by their, they're like earrings because they're afraid of what they're going to say, which doesn't allow for the conversation to flow and for people to get something from it. And I think that that's important you know, if we want to move some things forward and to just be able to have like your voice heard and feel like a a total human, because what happens a lot of times is we feel undervalued to the point where a lot of people feel like we're subhuman, right? That, Mm -hmm. you know, because we're, you know, not of the, the, actually they're not, you know, white people aren't even the majority anymore, but, you know, because we're not the majority culture that, you know, that we're the subhuman or like we don't exist. It's, it's an interesting conversation of, yeah, many people are like, these things are racist. I'm like, of course they are. The country is built on racism, but okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but really, it's, you're not a consideration. Like they don't even know that they're doing it, right? Most people are just doing their thing and they have no idea it's racist because it's the, it's the way it's been for all these years. So yes. many times they just are just doing what they do and they're not really even considering you at all, not in a bad way, but just in a, in a way where there's just not. And for, you know, you to understand that that's happening, but to say like, that's not okay. Right. So you can mention it. That's not okay. And, you know, stand up for it, but not to always come at it. Like somebody's coming at you with a pitchfork <clears throat> intentionally, because when they are, you know, what's happening there. Right. Mm-hmm. But when they're not, it's a different and nuanced conversation. And I feel like it's the same way with neurodiversity. Because, you know, I always say like I'm black and I'm a woman and I have ADHD. So I never forget these things that you know, I open up my eyes and there it all is. However, you can see I'm black and I'm a woman. You can't see that I have ADHD. Mm-hmm. Now, the second you meet me, or depending on how much I'm masking that day, right? <laughs> you'll figure out that I have ADHD or that's something different. And that is visible, but it isn't in a way like, you know, if I were in a wheelchair and many times it's that when you're like the face of like, this is neurodiversity. I think about when they say like, oh, the company's so nice and they're giving like uh, this poor autistic child a job. Aren't we great? 
And that's how you feel like, you know, so if you feel uh, many days of an art, it's like, oh, we're, here it is. Like, we have a slot. We're going to give it to this black woman, right? Aren't we great? So it's like, it's double that, right? So it's, it's like, this is happening all around. It's happening every aspect of my life. And I think that that's what maybe the majority of culture doesn't get. You know, you're doing that twice. And that's not okay. It's something to look at and something to consider. As I said, people just moving through their day, not even thinking about this, to take a second and consider. As I mentioned, like in coaching, sometimes you take a second and consider what you're doing with your life. It's like take a second and consider how people are running their days, right? And what that means. And when you might look at me and say, oh, well, you know, she can't, she can't run a team. Like she's a black woman. You, they don't have what they need. Oh, and you're late. Yeah, you can't run a team at work, right? Or you're the only uh, black person in the room. Or like, this is great with Zoom meetings. So Zoom meetings, you have to. People are looking you dead in your face in the camera, and I can't just come any way. Like I have to get all ready and dressed and hair a certain way and things like that. Not to mention maybe it's probably the clutter I have around me because I have ADHD. So that is all like a heavy lift before um, I click the button mm. on this Zoom meeting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, many don't think about that, you know, and then being a woman, if you have kids, that's a whole another heavy lift before we click the button on the Zoom meeting, right? And, you know, as ADHD, we only have a certain amount of bandwidth. I'm always having my bandwidth conversation. If you have a certain amount of bandwidth, you must use it, you know, judiciously. It's very precious. Yeah. So thinking about what you have to use it for, is you made one of the most important ADHD conversations. But when you have to use it for getting ready for the meeting, you know, the organization, the prioritization, and then the parts of getting yourself ready for the meeting, and then anything you might might occur when, you know, a lot of times with, with women, like, you know, we're just like ignored maybe on the, on the call or the conversation, or, you know, we all been at home, your kids come in, right? All of those things are, are like, quote unquote strikes against you or things that you have to like bump up against your bandwidth. And then you're asked to do something else. But by that time your tank's empty, mm-hmm. right? And then we're running on empty and then we're expected to do all the other things we have to do. And I, it's not considered, it's really not considered and it needs to be. And that's the workplace, uh, you know, as far as home and family, all the things we have to do as women and, and the expectation especially as an older woman, I find it interesting this late stage diagnosis conversation. I have friends that say, I'm late stage diagnosis and they're like 25. And I laugh, I'm like, ha I'm like, W. <laughs> so, you know, not, you know, and I, I definitely, there's a place like that, that isn't diagnosed like in school and there, it is, does feel late stage to them. But it's like late stage diagnosis when you're like know, 30, 40, 50 or over, it's the expectation of how they expect you to be as a woman, like an older woman, running your home, taking care of your kids, being a part of your family, having friends and the norms that all that goes with that. And the amount of bandwidth you have with your ADHD, right? And again, it's that bandwidth conversation. How much bandwidth do you have? How do you organize all that? And how does it not you know, look like there's something wrong with the fact that you can like be ostracized like if you come to someone's house and it's really messy it might be dirty right maybe clean enough to eat but if you know you're gonna have to run around and clean and pretend (laughs) that everything is okay you know that's all a big bandwidth conversation and then the black community things like that are hugely important 
right? You know, your organization, the cleanliness of your home, you know, being able to be parts of different communities, like things that are, and, you know, if you're in, you know, whether it's church or any religious organization or other civic organizations, yeah. things like that. I remember PTA, I remember buying Rice Krispie treats already made, unwrapping them and rewrapping them. That. Yes. Just to, just to have it look like I made them when it didn't look like I made them because, <laughs> but it was, it, I felt like it was important. And we, I did, I, I said it, I said it more than once uh, because, you know, to be able to have that standing as you saw some other mothers, you know, came with like cookie towers that they clearly made. And, mm -hmm. you know, that feeling and having to deal with that and, you know, but I'm the only, like one of two moms in the PTA that are black, right? Mm. Uh, so having to deal with all those different things all at once, like I said, it's a bandwidth conversation. How much bandwidth do you have and how to learn how to deal to, you know, parcel it out judiciously because that's all we have. And that's, I think there's a lot of burnout, a lot of overwhelm. You know, I always say like I was in the hamster wheel from hell. Like I was successful, but I was running around like a crazy person, working a couple jobs, taking care of my kids, you know, spending time with my friends, spending time with my family. I did all of those things. I did all of them. I think, I, and I even did more, right? <laughs> I went to school, like all kinds of things. But it was felt like I was juggling all the balls, all at once, all the time. But if I put one ball down, everything was going to topple over, like and. Mm. When you have all that and you also have the parts that are, you know, having to like mask at work or mask in different places. So people don't necessarily know about your ADHD. I don't know how well I was masking, but I probably a lot of people are like, you have ADHD? So I was doing it better than I thought. And then they're like code switching, like just having to be a part sometimes of conversations that, you know, they, people are expected to be a part of or to be in rooms where, you know, people aren't used to having, you know, people like black people around. It, it's a lot, it's a lot on your bandwidth. It's a lot on your bandwidth, not to mention microaggressions, things like people mm -hmm. go, is that your hair? Can I touch mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, things like that. It, it just becomes very tiring. And you wonder why there's like a lot of burnout. Suicide in, for black women is on the rise. I can't remember the rate. But it's just, it's so much to deal with. I know it's like the longest run on sentence, but I just want to say the part about family. Because sometimes family, I was blessed to have a family that under, I don't think they knew what they were understanding, but they were understanding people. Many other families are not. Yeah. Um, they don't understand. They don't know why. Many times, any type of quote unquote mental illness, because I don't know, I really don't consider ADHD a mental illness. That's mm -hmm. another long conversation I won't get into, yeah, but yeah. not understanding the nonlinear path. And if you mention anything about any type of mental illness, a lot of times it's met with a lot of resistance and upset or, or it's dismissed and ignored. Right. Yeah, it's the same in my be, culture too. It's in the Middle East. It's the same thing. It's like, oh, it's depression. Don't worry about it. You're going to grow out of it. Just push through. It's made up. Don't, don't even think about it. Yeah. Yeah, just push through. It's what we do, right? Mm -hmm. This is what we do. Yeah. So, well, this is what you do. Yeah, you did all. I did all that. I, I don't understand. Like, like I said to this day, like my parents are great, but my mother's still like, "You go what? What is it? What? What is it? I don't understand." Like, she said, her head's always like to the side. You know, like she's very understanding. She's like, "Okay, great. You know, you're you're doing. You're you're okay. 
then fine. She doesn't understand it. And she doesn't want to, which is fine because she's supportive. But it's many people just don't even have that support where it's like, I don't, I don't understand it, but I'm okay with it. And talk about cuts. Mm-hmm. Like those are, those are pretty big cuts. And I think that, you know, when a lot of women come to me, that is a big part of their regret. Like, could they have done something differently so that their family lives could be better, mm-hmm. right? So people could understand them better. Or, you know, many you come and like, well, how do I explain this to everyone? Just ask for what you need, right? You don't have to sit down and have that big, long conversation and give them a whole education about what this is, especially the people that aren't going to understand, right? It's just asking for what you need. Because again, it's all a bandwidth conversation. That's You're right. going to you know, spend all your bandwidth doing that? There because there's, there's this like... First, let me explain the race conversation to you, person X. And now let me explain my brain to you, person X. And it's like, oh, like there's times even for myself, I don't explain ADHD. I'm like, why do you want to know? You can Google it. I, I don't have the energy to tell you. If you're so interested, you can Google it. Like I really pick and choose who I explain all of this with, because like you said, the bandwidth thing, I love that. I Question for you. So for, for those women that are listening, the black women that are listening into this show, what's one or two things that you want them to consider when it comes to this mental health and all of these jugglings, like, oh my gosh, like women in general, could we just do an episode together on like being a mom and running a business and going to school? Like, shit, this <laughs> expectation that that is on us. Like sometimes I really ingratiate for me, it's like, I don't like it. It's like lean in women power. I'm like, no, man, when you're having a baby, go have the baby. When you want to do school, go to the school. Like this whole juggling it all is not okay. It's just not okay. Yeah. I, 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 it's interesting where I know I could not just do one thing at a time because that's not in my nature. Right. And then uh, many of my clients, I'm like, you know, you're not going to do just one thing. Exactly. I'm going to tell you a thing. I just pick the, you know, just you know, do this one thing. And of course, that'll make you more organized and you'll be more successful. It's like, no, pick a couple, but pick one that leads the path. So I think being women, we're great with kind of juggling it there. But what is, is we're always going to add one more thing, just one more thing, just one more thing. And there's expectation for us to add just one more thing, one more thing, one more thing. And, you know, I think when you bring in like being a black woman, it's, it is the stereotype, not just that others put on us, but that we put on ourselves where I can do all this. And sometimes like, just because you can do all this doesn't mean you have to, mm-hmm. and not all the time, mm-hmm. right? That's the thing, I am strong. I can do a lot, and it, it's, but I will try to do everything. And then that's when you run into burnout. It's like, so we're, it's really difficult to know what to put down, what to pick up, what to, I, you know, I have, I have to work hard at prioritization, right? Because I, I, it's all important. Yeah. And you know, so wanting like all women, but black women especially, to know that yes, it is all important. Like I'm not going to deny that, but to know that hey, you can live a successful life. Like it is possible, and it is possible when not having to pick up each and every ball all at once, all at the same time. Right? You know, learning how to be able to prioritize, learning how to delegate. Mm. You know, you know, letting people do it and letting someone else do it wrong and I have that be okay but also giving grace right 
to the other person, but especially to yourself. Most of the women I work with are Black women. We are so hard on ourselves. Anything that goes wrong, it's like, it's us. We're bad. We're horrible people. We can't do anything. And, you know, it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. because I know it's not the truth. And having people know that it's not the truth. Like, we make mistakes. We all do. Right. And that's okay. And if some people are looking and they may judge that because that does happen, because some of this for me also, I say it's a safety conversation, right? If you need your job, you're not if you're running and say, I have ADHD and I need all these accommodations. That's not great. <laughs> you know, sometimes just asking for what you need. Sometimes the safety conversation, like to be able to move in spaces where, you know, they're not used to having you around. So you need to be able to do those things. It is a safety, you know, safety work and family, but safety, like your actual physical safety. So to be able to do those things and realize that that is a big bandwidth thing. But knowing that even when you have those things, you can live well, like you can pick and choose the things that you want to do. You can say no, right? No is a complete sentence. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I give people a lot of language around a little more, you know, a few more words around no, so that they feel comfortable. And that you're not a bad person for doing that or, and you're not a bad person for not doing all the things that pe- other people expect you to do the way that they expect you to do it. Because when you start out with uh, like less bandwidth because of the way that we have to like maneuver in this world, having those extra expectations, you know, is killer. So I just really want black women to know it's like you can do things differently. You don't have to like wear the crown and the S on your chest all the time. You know, you pull it out whenever you want. So it's, not that. that all the time, you know, and not to put it down. Like, they're like, oh, we're not doing that at all. Like, there's a middle. And when you can find more of the middle, you can have a successful life. And when you're not in the middle, give yourself grace and be like, that's okay. It just makes for a much better life. It sure does. Thank you. That was, that was, that was good. That's, it's a journey, isn't it? And I, the one thing you said, I love what you said is I give them language to use. And, and a lot of times, some of it is, and I think sometimes maybe it is a bit of an ADHD thing is like, I hold on to certain phrases and I'm like, wait, no, I'm going to reframe this. I'm going to say it in a different way. And the language around that and, and actually having somebody else mirror it back. So I'm hearing you say this, is this really what you want to say out loud? Oh no, I'm going to say it differently. And just those nuances, you know, it, it's so it, it helps you build you up and empower you. And right. I, you know, it can be a no, it's not now it's later, you know, it's, it's things like that. Just little tiny things that we didn't think about. That's so important. My friend, this is great. We've been going for 45 minutes and I'm like, I thought we were going to do 30 minutes, but this is so good. I don't want it to stop. I honestly, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for your time, for, for giving me this gift of you and, and pouring into this conversation. I thank you so much. Before I wrap up, is there anything that I missed that you want to say that that uh, should be captured here? The, yes, there's one thing I want to say. The, the other thing that I think is really important for healing is community, right? A lot of times we're not around people that are like us. Like I said, I had the benefit of a really great family and great friends that um, understood me and I understood them. However, most of them, they, they didn't have ADHD or they didn't know you're around a community of people that actually get you and you can do all those things that you might think are weird or uh, different, or, you know, you hear a story and it's like, Oh, that's just like me. That part is really, really healing. Right. That's the part that can, you know, that's the part that I had coaching and then I had a community 
And that's what really like cemented it for me. That is the difference between who I was like five years ago and who I am today. I was together enough five years ago. Today, I'm comfortable in my own skin. Mm. And I didn't think I would ever be able to say that without having community. So I actually have a Facebook community for Black women with ADHD, like Black women with ADHD, executives and entrepreneurs. And it is for that. It's for community. So that, you know, you know, people would get together, talk, ask questions, just to know that there are other people around that are like you. It's not just you. And just a safe place to be. Because I would say, like, you talk about those cuts, I feel like community is like the neosporin that you put on them, right? Oh, I <laughs> and love bandage that. It up. So good. So, yeah, I think that that's really important to, to find a community that you like, that likes you. And, you know, that's the thing, especially with now where we have the pandemic. You have many people who like, I don't like like Facebook anymore, Instagram, but like they didn't like these things. Like you can reach out and have communities like all over the world. Like I have women from all over the world in my community that are Black women. So it's like, you don't have to always do it in person. It's great that we have this different outlet. So I just see, I ask everybody to try and seek out a community um, of like-minded people. It will really be helpful. So good. So good. I'll put the link in the show notes, folks, and also how to find Inger Shea and her amazing work. I'll put all of that in the, in the show notes. So go ahead and check her out in her Facebook group. That That's amazing. And I cannot even emphasize enough on the whole community thing. That's been part of my healing journey. And my thing is, all, I always say, you don't have to do ADHD alone because it can get lonely when you're doing it with family and friends and just by yourself. You definitely do not do this alone. You got to do it with the community. And that's how it used to be way back when, you know, when all of this hustle mindset and all of this grind was in there. People were in communities and, and it's so good to, to be a part of that again. So thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate you and what a great conversation. So folks, again, here's another awesome guest, another awesome expert sharing her wisdom. And I hope you got some uh, amazing uh, nuggets out of it as, as I did. And until next time, my friends, keep on shining.